Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm so happy that we have this guest on today. She's a dear friend. She's been on before. Uh, Ian and I have both had the privilege of working with her, talking about two-time Grammy nominee, 13-time Dove winner, singer-songwriter, and now author of a brand new novel, The Year of Jubilee. Cindy Morgan is in the house. So happy to have her here. She is an Enneagram 4, and we get into uh, just some really good conversation around the Enneagram and around her brand new book that you want to definitely get. Ian mentioned this several times, and even when we got off, he said it felt like we were just on the back porch, just having a cup of coffee and enjoying ourselves and people got to listen in and it definitely felt that way. You're going to love hearing this interview with Cindy. So I'm so glad that you get to uh, experience what we did with her. Uh, hey, don't forget to follow Ian on his socials at Ian Morgan Cron and at Typology Podcast on uh, all the platforms. So that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. I'm glad you're going to get to listen in on uh, this conversation with Cindy. And uh, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Crump. Technology family, I cannot wait to share with you my dear friend today, Enneagram 4, two-time Grammy-nominated, recipient of 13 Dove Awards, author of the new novel, The Year of Jubilee. Welcome, my great friend, Cindy Morgan. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, I'm jumping in right here at the beginning because I want to say something that neither of you will. One of those right. 13 Dove Awards is shared between the two of you. That's right. And I was thinking that when he said that, um, Anthony, that like, yeah, that's right. The 13, that's a, that is a very important one right there. Well, so yes, Cindy and I did write a song. It was called <laughs> Oh Love of God for mm -hmm. Laura's Story. It got a double that's award, fine. but I got to tell the truth here. I was just lucky to be in the room and it's she pulled true. me in her wagon, it's not man. True. <laughs> no, no, I did not. No, you are that you are the lead on that lyric. There is no question. Oh. Like you, I see that lyric. I'm like, this is an Ian Cron lyric. There's no Boom. question. So don't even try. Well, it was a really fun day, and it was a really so fun, fun. It was a really fun double wars. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> see if you can see if you can look up that double wars and uh, yeah. There's there's a story there. Look up our look up my acceptance speech when I'm I yeah. did not come dressed for the double wars. We were so shocked because of the people we were in the category against who were like yeah. you know looking at each other with such shock. Like what? <laughs> oh, and you actually had to talk me into going because I was sure I was like, why am I going? We're not gonna oh, win anything. Man. Oh well. It's a good memory. Cindy, good memory. Cindy, Enneagram 4, we always ask the same question up front because people need to know, how did you learn about the Enneagram? How did you figure out you were 4? What difference has the Enneagram made in your life? Well, I learned about the Enneagram because I attended a workshop that actually you were one of the lead, the guides for. Mm -hmm. You were one of the speakers for. And it was like a two-day workshop, two six-hour workshops. And I think that for me... The thing that drove it home was that fours are not afraid 
to carry sadness and they want to make everything beautiful. Mm. They seek beauty in everything. And I was like, oh, that's me. That's Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Well, I know that's true of you. You know, I think all fours uh, sort of ascribe to Dostoevsky's statement that beauty will save the world. Wow. And, you know, I really feel like that is you. I've been in rooms with you. I know what, where your heart is. I, I've often told people that uh, this is something I tell people all the time. Whenever Cindy Morgan opens her mouth, God falls out. Mm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is insane. <laughs> oh, it's no, true. And, you know, not when, worthy. When you sing about Kentucky and about your coal mining family and, you know, you just draw us into this world where we find beauty and also where we're able to look pain in the eye and make something better of it. Mm. I think that's a gift that fours have. And boy, you you have it in spades, girl. I know that for Mm -hmm. sure. For (laughs) sure. So, well, what difference has it made? You know, I think it's made a huge difference in my life. I mean, first of all, I think I always felt in a world where extroversion and I don't know, I think a lot of fours are introverted. And so I kind of look at those a bit hand in hand. But I think I kind of felt like I was always the oddball in the room and I didn't know why. And I I just kind of never felt like I fit in and that I was always lacking something and that everyone else knew what they were doing and I didn't. Mm. And I think that when I learned about the character traits of a four, suddenly I thought, oh, this is just in my DNA to think like this. Mm. It's not that it's necessarily true, although in some ways maybe it's true, but I think I, it made me realize, oh, this is just how I'm bent. And it is okay that I'm an introvert because being an introvert is a part of that personality type, I think. And um, I mean, from my perspective, I'm sure there are lots of extroverted fours, but would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert in here? I'm in the middle. I think Yeah. I, I love being with people. And I love being alone. I would say I spent Same. most of my time wow. alone. I spend two thirds of my time alone and yeah. I feel perfectly fine. I, you know, I, it's now one forty. I got up at five o'clock this morning and I've been alone the whole time. And yeah. it's me and the dogs and I'm, me, the dogs, good books, uh, editing a new book. And, you know, it's just, I love it. The so, fours are in the withdrawing stance. We are in the withdrawing stance, yes. Three sevens and eights are in the assertive stance, and one twos and sixes are in the compliant stance, which don't have time to go into all that, but simply to say that two, three sevens and eights go what we call go against people. Uh, ones, twos, and sixes go alongside people, and fours, fives, and nines move away from people. Mm. So, so it's move against, move along, and move back. Uh, I mm. definitely withdraw. I, one of the most difficult challenges I've had in my whole up for my whole life is conflict. Just terrible. How about you, Cindy? Are you a conflict problem person? I don't want conflict, but I'm also completely consumed by things being, what's the word I'm looking for? Resolved. Mm-hmm. I long for resolution in scenarios that are not resolved. And so the conflict, sometimes when you have to face a conflict, 
it's be, I will face that conflict because I want things to be resolved, mm-hmm. but I don't want to fight at all. I don't want to yell. I don't want to argue. I just want to discuss something so that it can be resolved so that I could sleep. Yes. So I agree with that. And that actually sounds very two-ish, right? So when we're under stress, when conflict is present, mm-hmm. we go to the low side of two and we start to be like, I can't sleep until this is resolved. I can't be in ruptured relationship. It's too stressful for me. I'm not me. okay if and you're not okay or I'm not okay if we're not okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that I think is low side of two for behavior. And that's why sometimes I, I don't sense you would do this, Cindy, but there's been times in my life where I have kind of caved and apologized in the middle of a conflict because I'm like, I just got to get out of this thing. Oh, I've done it a thousand times in my former life, of which I won't go into, but in my former life, that is still this life. So not like a past life, but like (laughs) years ago, years ago in my life, I was so tortured by things being unresolved. There's someone being mad at me that I would totally own the blame. Gosh, I would do it because I just couldn't. I couldn't take it. And I do think, and I'd like to know what you guys think about this, but the growth of going, you live with some things that will be unresolved. And like when you kind of make peace with like not everybody liking you, which I guess that's a two thing, but when you make peace with going, some things are just unresolved. It's just like such power in that. Yes. There's so much peace. I love the, my favorite theologian was a Catholic theologian named Karl Rahner, and he had this beautiful quote. He says essentially something to this effect: "We all die unfinished symphonies." Oh my goodness! Which is Holy like cow. to me, it's like learning to live yes. in the tension of the moment because you're always yeah. going to have tension, and if you try to escape it, which I think if we, when we go to the low side of two, we do, we try to get out of that tension. But that's what it mm-hmm. says to me: unfinished symphony. You know, so sometimes you're hanging on that four chord. Yeah, suspended for. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't resolve when you want it to. Doesn't resolve on this side. Okay, I love that. And by the way, Anthony, are you a four too? We're all fours here together. Oh my goodness, that is so great. Now, this is the irony in music. Mm -hmm. I love it when it doesn't, well, I love when the chord doesn't resolve in music. I love that. Yeah. Why is it that I love it creatively? And I hate tidy bows on things like, you know, like tidy bows, like Hallmark movies, whatever. It all makes me upset because I feel that it's not realistic. Well, Um, yeah, I think what's happening there, Cindy, because I think this is probably true of all fours, right? Is what you don't like is how inauthentic it is. Yeah. There you go. Right. And you and I and Anthony are so hung up on authenticity. I remember uh, seeing the movie Manchester by the Sea which I don't know if you ever saw it, but it is probably one of the saddest movies I have ever seen. Oh, wow. But I've I was so profoundly moved by it because it ended with such authenticity and mm. it was mm-hmm. such a real ending. Same thing with the movie Calvary, right? It's just, you mm-hmm. get to the end and you're like, oh my gosh. And it just brings you to tears because it's so real. When I see something all bowed up, as you say, put a, mm-hmm. tie a nice little ribbon on it, which unfortunately so much Christian music and filmmaking mm-hmm. does precisely that. Right. makes me want to just, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we, because it's not, it's not life. That's what we want to do. Right. And uh, That's right. It anyhow. is interesting though, that, that, because I identify with what you just said, Cindy, where you you can't stand it in art, but you kind of want it in your own life. Yeah. You know, like, Why is that? 
But don't you think that fours just like when we're talking about, you know, ending on the four chord, not resolving, unfinished symphonies, you know, all our, you know, beauty will save the world. This is like the ultimate four conversation happening here. Like we are just grooving on each other's sort of <laughs> deep well of the way we see the world, which is a little mm -hmm. odd. You know, I definitely grew up feeling like the oddball in the room, mm -hmm. like I was lacking something, like I was different, that I was alone. And then I met all these other fours who felt alone. And then I realized then it's impossible to feel alone anymore, <laughs> uh, which was kind of a disappointment anyway, you know. Yeah, because you're not the only one. Exactly. You don't get to I'm be not so the only one. After all. Oh, man. Oh, well, I mean, look, I do think our pain is unique, but it's not special. Yeah. Yeah. And for some fours, that's a bitter pill to swallow, you know, because their whole identity, and I don't know if this happened to you, Cindy, at some point it did for me, my whole identity became organized and wrapped around some core trauma and suffering in my life that became self-defining. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, it became like, okay, well, I am my suffering instead of I am a person who has suffered. It's like, no, I am my suffering. Did you ever mm -hmm. do that? Oh, yes. I mean, I feel like there were a couple situations in my life that I just, I wrote so many songs about it. And at one point I thought, you know, I'm just kind of sick of writing about this. But why do I keep writing about it? And I, I think this, the search for authenticity drives me maybe to the sadness and the trauma because that feels authentic and because you never want to be presenting something that feels manufactured or not coming from a real place. And so if you don't have anything that's sad to write about, then you just want to go back. You return to that well because it feels real. And even though you've moved past it, and uh, I mean, I don't want to do that anymore, but I think I, I did that for a long time. As a four, I believe we are, each one of us, we are unique and special, but we misidentify what makes us unique and special because we yeah. over-identify with that pain and suffering as to whatever that thing is that we think, oh, this is what makes me special. And it, that's a miss. That's a miss because we are unique and we are special, but it just, it has to come from the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Have you guys heard about that? I think Tim Keller wrote about this in his book on the power of self-forgetfulness or something like that mm -hmm. was the title but he talks about madonna and in an interview that she did for billboard magazine where she said every time that i reach um a goal i do that because i want to convince myself that i'm special but then the minute that i reach that goal i realize i'm not special anymore so i have to start all over again to feel special again mm. and, I, and just when you said that anthony i thought oh i wonder if madonna is a four Hmm. Or a th with a three wing. Mm -hmm. I could see that. Because like the achiever feels like, you know, another goal. And maybe she's a three with a four. So I was just thinking about a song I wrote when I was 24. Okay. <laughs> it was called Stranger in the Promised Land. And the first verse went something like this. It said, well, I've got this hole inside my heart and it caused me years of pain. Someone told me once you could fill it up but it comes back time and again. Mm -hmm. So where's the joy of walking beside you? Where's the rose that grows in the sand? Mm. God, I called your name 
but only silence came and I'm angry and I still don't understand. And I remember think mm. when I came across those lyrics again, remember this is like, I wrote those lyrics like wow. four, 40 years ago. I didn't know the Enneagram when I wrote those lyrics and you go back and you think to yourself, man, you don't think that four thing has been playing in my life since way back when. Wow. And, and to your point, I think what happens with fours, especially in the arts, but in other fields too, is, we go up into our imaginations. We happen to be past orient, one of the past oriented types. Fours, fives, and nines are past oriented types. Three, sevens, and eights, future oriented. One, twos, and sixes are present oriented types. So you and I and Anthony are really good about going into the past, then way up into our imaginations where the past can mushroom and flower in all these different directions. And then we can draw the juice out of it into song or music or into a novel, Cindy, which we're going to talk about in a moment or in, in others, you know, I suppose, you know, Martha Graham could do it in dance and, you know, Ingmar Bergman could do it in film and, you know, on and on and on. We, we have access to this rich storehouse of often very sad material that stirs up the muse, you know? That's right. Oh, hundred. Well, first of all, that lyric is beautiful. I love that rose in the sand line. Mm. And the fact that you still have that lyric all these years later, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Did you just run across it in an old law book? Yes. And it, oh, it's, oh my goodness. Yes. In fact, Anthony will tell you, in fact, that I'm in the process right now of going through about 10 old journals that I began writing way, 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 way back mm -hmm. when. And that was one of the pages in it was that, was that song. I'll, one day I will play you that song. Uh, yes. Because I recorded it with uh, Phil Nash and I recorded oh, that together. Man. Oh, that's so, so great. Anyway, way back in the day. All right. So you're an Enneagram 4. I want to know what it's like for you because, you know, Enneagram 4s are tricky in relationships. Right. We are. I mean, ask my wife, ask my girlfriends, my past girlfriends, <laughs> not current girlfriends. I might add. Um, I thought you were calling Annie's, your wife your girlfriend. I know, if Annie's listening, I didn't mean that, honey. Um, <laughs> so what's been your history with that? I ask for this question all the time because we're tricky. So what were you like as a younger woman? Like, have you been a person that's been a little... I mean, I'm, I've been high maintenance at different times in my relationships. What about you? Let's get honest on that. Oh, I mean, if you were dysfunctional and codependent, I was into you. Like, I mean, I think I definitely had a type. <laughs> if you were mostly unattainable, dysfunctional and creative, yes. Oh. The answer is yes. <sighs> It's like, oh. I can't quite get a handle on you. Like, as they say, slippery, the mm -hmm. slippery people. And so I think I, that was not good. And that, that held fast for me for the most part of my entire life until recent years mm -hmm. and where I kind of had to figure that out. And I don't know if that's a part, do you think that's a part of like, we wrap ourselves up in drama because we don't want to be bored? What is that? Like, I heard someone say, a mutual friend of ours say that fours are like, come here, go away. Yes. Come here, yes. go away. Yes. Yeah. We call it the push-pull dance of the four, right? 
And what is that? Oh, golly. Oh. You know, I think it's an abandonment reflex. And mm-hmm. I also feel like what you just described is perfect for stuff, right? We long for the unavailable and the unattainable. It's so you're always reaching for something that's six inches just beyond your grasp. And you just keep chasing it, chasing it. And, you know, it, that brings up all kinds of feelings of lacking, of why can't I have it? You know, what's wrong with me? Seems like everybody else has it. And it, so there's this sort of like, you know, Isle of Misfit toys feeling uh, mm-hmm. as we as we kind of go through that. And, uh, you know, the push me, pull you thing, I mean, it's a slight... I hate to put it this way, but it's a slightly borderline personality kind of behavior, right? It's like, you know, the relationship of push-pull. It's like, I push you, I love you. So, no, it's more like, I hate you, don't go away sometimes. You know what I mean? It's like in its most unhealthy state. It's like, I love you, go away. Maybe it's a better way to put it. And, And so, yeah, I mean, again, we're complicated. So, in your book, The Story of You that I've been reading, like, I love when you talk about the how to transition from that behavior into growth. And so how does one transition from being a four who is attracted to people that they can never attain, which is like you're just on a treadmill of this is going to end because you also want to be with someone authentic. You don't foresee security. So then you will be perpetually unsure of where you stand in a relationship that you can't feel like you can ever attain it. Mm -hmm. What is the healthy view? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, in the book, I would have said that the journey is from envy to equanimity, right? Envy being the Mm -hmm. deadly sin to the Mm -hmm. antidotal virtue of equanimity, of being able to live in a state of emotional balance, regardless of what life throws at you. So that's one part of the journey. More specifically, I think, you know, it's part of the journey for all feeling types, right? Which is the journey of stop giving your damn power away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a journey toward, you know, we, again, twos, threes, and fours struggle with issues of identity. It's a big issue for twos, threes, and fours. Like, who am I without my projected mask, you know? And so I think, you know, for us as fours to allow ourselves to have equanimity for me is partly like just being okay with a, a lovely ordinary relationship. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I just don't need the drama. I just don't need the drama anymore. Need the drama. Yeah. I. You know. What if you could just be with somebody, marry someone, partner with somebody that was your friend and you felt comfortable with. Yeah. You know good. where I can, I love that and I totally identify with that. I think that I've gotten to the point where I thought there's so much other drama in my life with work and I mean I'm in the entertainment business for heaven's sake. I mean we are in the arts and there's nothing more dramatic than that. I mean the everyone that's working in this world is temperamental and creative and you know you just don't the target is always moving but and I thought, you know what? I'm going to deal with that in my professional life. Mm-hmm. So my personal life, I want there to be someone who feels stable. Yeah. Do you know, I, you probably do. Do you know Dolly Parton? Well, she, you know, gave me my start in life. I used to work at Dollywood. I won her contest like ages ago. And ah! I did a lot of, I did a lot of work with her. I got to do some recordings with her and a TV show with her. She's amazing. Right. But I. 
Yeah, tell me what you think. I did not know that. However, I don't know anything about her marriage. It's always like secondhand weird information. But I'm just told that her husband, you know, of course, her husband just sort of lives at home. He never goes to any of these big events, you know. And of course, she's got a very big histrionic personality. You know, I love her to death. You know, I don't know her. But I think she probably has this very even keeled, lovely relationship at home where it's just calm and he's not interested in being of drama. Am I getting this right, Cindy? Because that that to me feels like- Oh, 100% that they're still married. And I actually, someone in the town that I live in, her husband and Dolly's husband, they have a hobby they do together. And that's kind of what she says, that they're just like the sweetest, most like down to earth. And they just have this like very normal life together. Yeah. It's so funny because I was talking to a dear friend this morning. Okay, folks, this is uh, all of us talking about, this is all Enneagram 4 stuff. But th- we're going to get to your book in a second, Cindy, but I'm having so much fun no, right I now. I love this. Okay, I feel like we're having coffee and, you know, just on the back deck. <laughs> but I was talking to a friend this morning and I said, you know, when I was kind of a crazy acting out addict, everything was drama. Everything was a drama waiting to happen. And I think that's just as a four. I was just waiting for drama to happen. Just made me feel alive. And I said, I just don't have very much drama anymore. And it sometimes I feel like it's just my life has become boring. And then I think to myself, what if that's actually called contentment? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know? Hallelujah. Oh, oh my, my gosh. Goodness. All right. We're jumping, Cindy. I want to talk to you about your new novel. Anthony, have we ever had a novelist on the I don't the, believe the, so. I don't think we've had a novelist. Really? No, oh, I'm the only novelist that's ever so been on this fun. show. All right. You have a new book, a novel called The Year of Jubilee. And uh, I want to know all about it. And I also want to know about how the Enneagram has woven into this book because you mentioned it yes. to me early on. So let us know all about the book. And I can't wait. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to go on record and say that you wrote one of my favorite novels, Chasing Francis, which I love. I still think of scenes in that book. I was thinking, you know, it's like certain novels that you read and just those scenes just stay with you forever. And so there's some scenes in that book that I've never forgotten. Mm. I got to get it. I love to read in the springtime. What Mm. is it about the springtime? You just want to get a good book out and read it. And so- I've got Chasing Francis actually like on the shelves, like over here. I always keep it close by, you know what I'm saying? It's one of my faves. So, and you know, for me, I started writing, so the year of Jubilee, it's a coming of age book. It's a historical Southern fiction set in 1963 at the height of the civil rights movement. And the setting is a small town, a small coal mining town in Eastern Kentucky. And that's where my parents grew up. That's my history is in Eastern Kentucky, all of my my roots, my hillbilly family. But basically, the beginning or the genesis of why I wrote this novel is um, I had this one memory that was actually my first memory as a child um, when my brother Samuel, so I was about three and a half. He was almost five. And so he um, had lymphoma and just was kind of uh, in his last days. And Samuel had a pet rooster named Rojo that he'd received as an Easter present as a little chick from my Mm. Aunt Frida. 
Anyway, that animal had, and he had this like strange connection. Like they were like kindred spirits. And um, he wanted to see me and he wanted to see Rojo. And so my dad came home, loaded us up into the car and brought me to the hospital. And it was a small hospital so that if he put me on his shoulders, then I could hold Rojo up to the hospital window so that I could see Isaac, Isaac could see me, and he could see Rojo. Mm -hmm. And that's my first memory as a child is seeing him. And, you know, I think for me, I was um, the youngest and uh, Sammy was the next youngest. And so growing up under the umbrella of the worst possible thing that can happen, which is the death of a young child, I think that like the movie Inside Out, where it's like there's joy and it's yellow and then sadness is blue. It just put the blue cast over everything and um, how my parents kind of walked through that. And so I knew that there was something really significant about that moment for me. And just what happens after that, you know, the aftermath of that. My mother, she was a you know, Pentecostal preacher in the hills of Kentucky and a gospel singer. So she was a woman of a very strong faith, and there was like a strong dose of hellfire in there, but a lot of, you know, dysfunctional theology. And so all of these faith healers came into the hospital room making a lot of promises about if you do this, if you do that, he's going to get healed. And of course, that's not what happened. And so seeing my mother, being a witness to my mother and how that impacted her, and how all of it impacted my whole family. So the story is inspired by that real thing in my family's life. But I built an entire world. You know, I built a world and uh, a lot of fictional characters and all fictional situations. And, and that wasn't in 1963. Because of this idea that we are all, you know, we all experience something that wraps us up in, a ch in chains, you know, and that we don't feel that freedom. And so I wanted to do a parallel between that and about the chains that have been put on an entire race of people because of something, the injustice of that. And I just wanted um, this 13-year-old girl, Grace Mockingbird, who's coming of age and trying to find her own voice. So Grace the mother, um, I believe the mother to be a five with a six or a six with a five wing. Mm. So that's Virginia. And Grace is a four with a five. And that's, so a lot and that's of, the main character is Grace. Grace Mockingbird is mm -hmm. the main character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's a four with a five. That also happens to be my number mm -hmm. and wing. Mm -hmm. but, um, but then her mother is very, very anxious and very worried. And um, so basically just that kind of path through trying to see the integration in the South that's happening the summer of 1963 and all of the really important things that happen and this family and how they respond to that in light of the brother who gets sick. Yeah. You know, it's, there's a wonderful quote, and I, I remember this when I was writing my memoir that I came across it, and it was, all memoir is fiction, and all fiction is memoir. Yes. And, you know, it's no surprise. I think the main character in Chasing Francis, Chase, is a four. 
and with a strong three wing. Hello, that would be me. And then you have a four with a strong five wing. Oh, oh wait a minute. There's that's your main character because you know we write through the lens, right? And yeah. particularly as uh, I think as for me anyway as a beginning novelist, okay, it was just so e- much easier. It was a gift to write out of my own sort of lens. I, I admire writers who can you know come up with characters that are nothing like themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, I haven't done that yet anyway. And that, that would be kind of a cool thing. But I know that the Enneagram, I guess, when you look back on a book, I mean, I look back on Chasing Francis, I can now see those characters and what their types were. You know, it'd just be interesting to write one now, knowing the Enneagram, I would be like, oh, mm-hmm. well, we need a seven here. <laughs> yes. Or you know, whatever, you know, without it being Shake forced. things up. You know what? And I have a seven and Jen is a seven. So she comes into this family of like everything is heavy. Mm. Everything they're carrying is such heaviness. And then June is like sparkle. She's just like this light and this energy that really I needed a character like Aunt June to really keep everybody afloat, mm-hmm. um, to just keep the wheels turning. Otherwise, you get bogged down in the sadness. You have to laugh. You know, you have to have some levity. And um, so that's interesting that you say that. Yes. there. Well, I can't remember the name of it now. What was it? Minori. The Japanese or the Korean film that won the Oscar two years ago for mm-hmm. best film. There was a character in it and it was the grandmother. Did you see it, Anthony? And the I, grandmother is the sparkle. I just remember she, it. Yeah, yeah, she won the Oscar for it. She is the, she's the humor. She's the joker in the thing. And she kind of sparkles in the middle of this very dark set, you know, and it's the, it's the sort of the ballast for the children in particular, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, in fact, every, everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once, what is the, I get that title all messed up. That's up for the Oscar this year. Same thing. There's a character in that. I saw that. Okay. Yeah. There's another character in there. I have a question for you. So there is one character, so his name's Golden and he's a child healer. And he's a very important part of Grace's character arc. But I once was with a person and she said that she grew up being forced into being a two because her parents had decided that they were not going to divorce, but that they would live separately. So they had separate bedrooms and she was the messenger, go tell your dad, go tell your mom. And so she grew up being forced into this role as a two. But what she realized was she was an eight. Mm. But she realized it later on. Of course, twos go to eight in stress. And so I have a character in here, Golden, who, because of the scenario he is in, he has been forced to be a nine, a peacemaker. But he's not. He's a two. Interesting. Well, so how does that work when people have to move towards something like that? Well, you know, uh, we've spoken about this a lot on the show that the twos and nines is the pair that's that is most misidentified. Like nines identify as twos all the time, and twos identify as nines all the time. Wow! Uh, wow! Because they both have struggles with boundaries. They're both really nice, and they tend to be accommodating particularly nines, they want to please, both want to please, you know, nines don't like conflict, twos are better with conflict, but they still don't like ruptured relationships and nines don't like disconnection. So again, there's a lot of 
uh, in between. I wonder, Cindy, if I had if we had time, we could actually really take a look at that character. I could ask some questions. Like, how do you imagine this character responding in a situation like this? I wouldn't be surprised if you found out that they were really a two or they were really a nine for sure. Uh, you know what I mean? Just going to, in stress, going to this other, interesting. Uh, not in stress. No, no, no. Not in stress. No. Because the two in stress is going to go to the low side of eight. And when it's doing mm-hmm. real well, it's going to go to the high side of four. Yeah. Okay? So it's not going to go to nine. That's just not where it's going to go, which is why I'm saying I'm wondering if your character is a mistyped nine or two. I just can't tell yeah. you, right? Interesting. I so, like that. Okay. Yeah. And that's so the do great you think thing that's about- right? Do you think that's right? What the, my friend said that like that she was forced to be a two, but she was really an eight. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, she was forced to be a two. Well. I mean, I don't really know. I'd have to talk to her more. But remember, twos and eights share a line. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's probable that there's some, you know, sneaking back and forth in there between the two of them. And in a situation like that, I can imagine there's a lot of anger and uh, also a lot of needing to be uh, a helper, you know. And uh, so, I mean, this is the wonderful thing about the Enneagram, right? Like in her (laughs) situation, it's like, okay. You don't know yet, but you have now opened the door into a conversation about your past, about your present, about who you are that may not be resolved, you know what I mean, anytime soon, Mm -hmm. but you're in the conversation with yourself. like That's right. You know, and I feel like that alone is worth the price of admission with the Enneagram, you know, just Mm -hmm. worth the whole price. Can I ask a question about the book? Yes. You mentioned in the book the idea of the poor mind. Just because we were talking about, you know, how these things are autobiographical or we're pulling from our own, you know, source. Where have you been or suffered from the poor mind? And has that, is that something about this last season of your life that you suffered from that and you've come through it? Oh, that's so good. I'm so glad you brought up the poor mind because that is a so, I feel like that's foundational in terms of like, an issue that I'm trying to kind of get at the bottom of. And for some people who, you know, may not have heard of that idea of the poor mind, it's just that spiritual mental poverty where I think for me, so if I put like, if I put skin and bones on that, you meet people who are maybe are from a impoverished situation like you will see a lot of that in eastern Kentucky if you go up into the hills you have folks that are living a very second world existence Mm -hmm. up there and they kind of there's like a sense of desperation where it's like we have we surrender to this we surrender to our circumstances and then they could win the lottery and be able to rise above that, but it wouldn't matter because mm. their poverty is in their DNA. And I think they would, you know, not know how to operate because of mentally they are still so locked into this. But then in that same neighborhood, you could pass someone's house who also lives in a shack, but they have flowers in mm-hmm. their front yard. And they have a bookshelf with books on them. You see them, and they yeah, would never totally. buy a lottery ticket. Uh-huh. Right. 
I think that's the uh, mysterious element or, of resilience. Mm-hmm. Like some people are just resilient. They just bounce better than other people. They bounce back better than other people. And in difficult circumstances, they can rise above. And people, some people are just constitutionally incapable of bouncing back or rising above circumstance, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's tragic. And then what comes is resignation. And then I think in communities, resignation is contagious. Mm. You know, it's a contagion. I think it's like a virus that moves around a community. You think about all these communities in the South and even upstate New York and places like that that have been overrun with opioids, which is, you know, in some ways, it's both a symptom and a cause of that kind of despair Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we find in, in all those really hard places, you know. I remember, um, you know, our buddy, Andrew Greer. Mm -hmm. uh, Yes. He's been on the show. Yeah, he's an Enneagram, too. Mm -hmm. And um, so he and I, we did this hymn tour called Hymns for Hunger. Oh, yeah, we came to Wild Goose that one year with you, Ann. Yeah. And so he and I took a trip to uh, Nicaragua. And, you know, the idea of people there living in, you know, in like, Pretty serious poverty, but like are enlightened that are mm-hmm. quite happy, you know, with life. And it's interesting. And there was another thought that I had that I have completely lost in my brain. <laughs> when you were sorry. saying that earlier, it made it took me back to our earlier conversation with Dolly. Yeah. You knew where she grew up, mm. but somehow she knew right. she transcended that whole yeah. mindset that mm-hmm. she was in the middle of or found herself in the middle of and knew she was going somewhere different. It is, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. She knew she was. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that constitutional resilience, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, I can see in, in my own life and my own family where I have to say, I mean, it, I had a hard slog, but I think I was resilient and I have other siblings that weren't mm-hmm. and you can't, can't fault them. You know, uh, you have to have some compassion and understanding, you know, so, you know. Well, and I also think, I I think if you have one person speaking into your, if you are someone who's living in that kind of a despair scenario, for my mom, she grew up again in Eastern Kentucky. Her mother was uh, illiterate, signed her name with an X and the mother of like 12 children. Mm. And no dad. So just like, just making it happen, making it work somehow. And um, very hardworking. And yet this sense of oppression. And my mom talked about these missionaries that came through one summer. And they just spoke life to her. And that kind of changed her trajectory. And sometimes I think it's that one person that comes along and can say this key thing they can make all the difference but if you never have that one person mm. i don't know you know yeah it cannot happen i had a and i'd love to know if you two guys have one but i remember years ago and i was older i was you know in my 40s and i was actually i had just finished my first two chapters of Chasing Francis that was the proposal to go to the publisher, right? So I hadn't even gotten a deal yet. It was just the proposal, right? So it was the two sample chapters. I sent it in and I remember this was before the days of, I guess I don't know if I had cell phone or not, but anyway, a call came in and I could see on a 
screen who it was. And it was Nav, it was this editor at Nav Press. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I picked it up. And she, during the course, very early in the conversation, she said, did you know you were a writer? Wow. And I said, <laughs> I said, no. And she went, well, you do now. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is awesome. And I, I remember that was kind of, and I, I've never spoken to her How since. Was that? It was like a cosmic blessing oh, of some yeah. kind. You got mm-hmm. one of those, Cindy? You know what? Yes. And the one that came to mind. So for me, how the year of Jubilee, I mean, I showed this draft to you. I showed a very early draft to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, 10 years ago? Yes, yes, yes. And um, so early. So on draft 19, I have a good friend who is a publisher. And she had mentioned to me, hey, I have this amazing uh, agent that she recommended. And I said, well, could you connect me? And she said, well, I can't connect you without reading the manuscript. And I was like, okay. And so I sent it. And then a few weeks go by. And then I'm in the Wendy's drive through <laughs> um, Get myself a uh, grilled chicken with berries and probably a small Frosty. And then she calls and says, hey, Daniel, who is my agent now, is going to reach out to you. But listen, we sent this to our editorial staff and they love this book. And I was like, what? And I started to cry. I was trying to make my order over the talk back thing. (laughs) (laughs) Chicken salad. I mean, I was so emotional because I was like, because, you know, you do it and you work on this thing. I mean. Really, I've been working on this book for 10 years, like, and for the last five, like, very seriously. And because I didn't know what I was doing when I started, I had no idea. And so, yeah, it's that kind of moment where you feel validated. You know, you Mm -hmm. feel like, oh my goodness, all this work wasn't for me. Although I had to do it in a way that if it was just for me, it had to be okay. Mm -hmm. Anthony, you got one? A blessing moment that like changed your trajectory? I do. I've got several, but the first one that comes to mind when you say that, this is when I just, I've been writing for about six months and uh, I was down in Dallas. Mutual friend, I'm sure of all of ours, Chris Rodriguez came over to the house. We went to a movie together and we ended up in my den, my parents' house. And I played him some of these, my first couple songs I wrote. And it was like expletive, expletive, expletive. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you are an artist. And I was like, wow. Wow. And it's so true. I just, and I so Mm -hmm. respected him as an artist. It made an imprint for sure. Yeah, well, it goes to show you the power of words and blessing That's like right. that, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, Cindy Morgan, author of the new book, The Year of Jubilee, the new novel, The Year of Jubilee. It sounds so beautiful, and I love Southern fiction. It's such a wonderful Nietzsche uh, kind of genre, and I just know that whether you live in the South or the West or the East or the North, <laughs> wherever you live, this book is going to really move you. Hmm. Cindy, where do people find out? I mean, I know they can get it on Amazon. They're going to be able to go get it on, you know, Barnes and Noble, blah, blah. They're going to go get it anywhere fine books are sold. But where do they find out about you? Yeah, I've got a website, www.cindymorganmusic.com. Awesome. Yeah, and there's a little 
There's lots of little buttons on there, some for music, some for books, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> some for Etsy macrame projects, some for... <laughs> All the buttons. <laughs> All right, everybody. Again, Cindy Morgan, The Year of Thank Jubilee. You. Check out her music, but most of all, check out this new novel, The Year of Jubilee. Cindy, you know I love you. Love you. Thank you, friends. Thanks All right, everybody. On. Remember, everybody, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Can't wait until next time. <laughs>